Welcome to episode 115 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Nicolas Tresch. Nicolas is a research associate at INRAE and the Toulouse School of Economics. His work focuses on risk and decision theory, environmental economics, cost-benefit analysis, and more recently on animal welfare. He's published scientific papers on subjects including the precautionary principle, the value of statistical life, and climate policy. Luna, I'm trying to do a podcast introduction here. He has organized several international conferences and written numerous articles for the general public, as well as reports on risk policy issues. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 114 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists and not even just humans. Thank you for listening. Salut Nicolas, ça va? Salut Jamie, ça va? <laughs> I'm afraid that's as far as the French is going to go today because despite having a half French wife, my competence in French is not good enough to have this interview and I know your English is much better than my French so I apologise. <laughs> but it's great to get the chance to talk to you, thank you. We've had a few interactions on Twitter so it's good to have a proper conversation and have you as a guest on Sentientist Conversations. Um, and as I've mentioned, it's a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions and the most important, what's real and what and who matters. Um, and I have a bias because I'm trying to develop and popularize this very simple worldview called sentientism, which suggests when we're thinking about what to believe and what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach committed to using evidence and reason as opposed to you know revelation or uh, fideistic faith, for example. And when it comes to what matters and who matters, the clue is in the name that it suggests we should grant cons moral consideration and have compassion for all sentient beings, as any being that has the capacity to experience suffering or flourishing. But I'm talking to people in these conversations who disagree with or agree with that philosophy and worldview. So it'll be great to understand your own personal story. But before we get to those questions, how would you best introduce yourself? Okay, so um, hello, so I'm, I'm uh, Nicolas Tresch, uh, I am French, I live in the south of France, in Toulouse, uh, I'm part of a department in economics uh, called um, Toulouse School of Economics, uh, I'm also a researcher at INRA, so, which is the French Institute of uh, Agriculture, um, and so I am, as, a, as an economist, I, um, I, my background is in decision theory, so I used to work a lot on uh, mathematical modeling, trying to uh, rep represent individual and collective decision, economic decisions, uh, mostly in uh, risky situations, so that's my background, my uh, focus of my PhD thesis. Uh, then I moved on uh, as a, in terms of application to environmental issues, uh, climate change and other issues. Uh, I, I did also quite a, quite a number of papers on uh, behavioral economics, meaning uh, at the interface of economics and psychology. 
Uh, and some, uh, I would say, uh, about eight years ago, I started some research uh, related to uh, animals, animal welfare, which is very new. In economics, it's really a niche topic. Essentially, all economics is anthropocentric, so it only considers humans. Uh, in particular, humans as a, as a source of um, moral consideration. And uh, I got interested in animal issues. Uh, and so that's quite broad. As you know, it includes the issues of meat consumption, veganism, but also other uh, topics such as environmental impacts and moral issues, of course, and so on. And so my, uh, I think most of my research these days is about uh, trying to include some um, animal issues into uh, into mainstream economics, I would say. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. And that was how I first came across your work, because um, this anthropocentric focus on humans is so pervasive in almost every field of human endeavour, you know, politics, news and media, psychology, sociology, and certainly economics. And I've almost developed this habit of just trying to think in a very amateur way about each of those different fields and just recasting them from a sentientist concept. So instead of having you know, human politics, we think about sentientist politics, as Alastair Cochrane has written about. You know, you can think about sentientist justice, you can think about sentientist development goals, you can think about sentientist declaration of human, of, de- of sentient rights instead of just human rights. Um, but economics is one field that I hadn't really thought that much about. So your work has been, it's been fascinating to come across your work, trying to, you know, bust the anthropocentrism and maybe start a new field of sentientist economics. So it'll be fascinating to come back to that when we talk about how to make the future a better place, because I think that's a, you know, it's a very important emerging field. Yeah, so thank you. So let's start with the first of those big philosophical questions, you know, what's real and what to believe. So for many of my guests, that's a personal philosophical story about whether they grew up originally in maybe a, a religious or a supernatural or more mystical um, context, family, society, their own beliefs, or one that was more naturalistic or scientific or and or, or a mix of the two, and how that side of their thinking, their epistemology has changed over time, if it has. So you can wind the clock back to your childhood, if you like, and um, it would be fascinating to know your story and where you are now on that big question. Okay, so as you, as you know, as in, in academia, we are not used to talk about um, our personal life and issues, but I think it's very interesting because at the end of the day, uh, a part, if not all, of what we do relates to uh, who we are and uh, what we have done in the, and, and our even in in, in childhood. Uh, so, um, as I said, I'm French. My parents are, are French. They are um, they they divorced when I was uh, very young. Uh, so I was partly raised by my mum, by my dad, by my grandparents. So I, I was moving around in the in the southwest of France when I was young. And he, they were all Catholics, but uh, religion was not, uh, as far as I can tell, it's of course always a bit difficult to um, to uh, reflect on that. But as far as I can tell, religion was not very important in my life. I went to church and so on, but uh, it was not very important. And I, uh, I didn't feel myself very involved into religion. And when I I became adult, uh, I forgot about it, and um, I'm not really opposed to religion, but I don't have a very strong positive views about religions, especially since I've been working on animals. I think, um, as you 
probably no uh, religion has contributed, at least some religions have contributed to uh, this strong divide between humans and animals, this dominion, this stewardship story, and so on. And so I'm, I'm say that I'm, I have chill. I have uh, mixed feelings about uh, religion in general, but I don't think it has been very important for me. And I was not ever uh, raised in, within a sort of very scientific uh, atmosphere. My um, my parents uh, were uh, not very well educated. Uh, but what may have played a role is that I've, I've been surrounded surrounded by animals, uh, dogs at the house, and my uh, my grandfather was a farmer. And there were cows in the farm, and my dad is uh, training horses for horse racing. So I've been surrounded by animals in my life, and I, I, I remember when I was a kid, I liked to view myself as, a, as an animal lover. Uh, and I was uh, even, uh, my, some of my friends uh, teased, teased me about, about this. Uh, but I, I don't think it, it was very important either. It became important, uh, maybe I can talk a bit more about later, when I had my sort of vegetarian epiphany like eight, ten years ago. But uh, at, before that point, I don't think it was uh, extremely important in my life. Yeah, thank you. So it sounds like it, um, there was a cultural default of Catholicism, but for your family, it wasn't a particularly important part of their world. And that sounds like it made it reasonably easy for you to just leave it behind. Some of my other guests have had, you know, really traumatic, difficult experiences of leaving a you know, leaving a religious worldview behind. But that wasn't my experience, and it doesn't sound like it was yours either. Were there any other aspects of, you know, supernatural thinking, for example, that have been attractive to you? Because some people I've spoken to have left a established religion, if you like, but they've found themselves feeling maybe spiritual but not religious, or having some sense of the transcendent or the magical or the mystical that might come through a connection with nature or the universe or some other aspect of the supernatural. Have you been drawn to any of that line of thinking, or are you fairly clearly sort of scientific-minded, evidence and reason? You know, that's that's the way forward. As far as I can tell, once again, it's a bit difficult to really uh, remember precisely uh, my beliefs when I was young, but I, I did this sort of supernatural belief or magical belief didn't play, didn't play an important role he, uh, when I was young. And I think I'm clearly on the like, reason, evidence, ah, science. Uh, at least I like to see myself uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, as a sort of scientifically minded person. And, uh, and I'm, I tend to be quite um, suspicious, skeptical to these uh, many types of beliefs that are beyond the science. I would say, even though I, um, I understand that there, we cannot explain everything and uh, there are some mysteries in this world, uh, I, uh, it's not something that is, is important in my, in my life, I would say. Yeah, thank you. And and I like the way you describe the influence of religion on ethics, because that's the next question we'll come to. And I and I I like the balance you described because there are some explicitly religious rationales for, for example, anthropocentrism, as you said, you know, humans are special because we're made in the image of God. We've been given dominion over others, you know, non-humans are there for our purposes and so on. And you can see that playing through. But we don't need religion to come up with anthropocentrism. You know, most people with a very naturalistic worldview have found, you know, supposedly naturalistic approaches to still get to an anthropocentric 
start. So we can't blame religion too much. I think it is a, you know, it's one source of rationales that can cause harm, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, us humans are very good at finding justifications for anthropocentrism, anthropocentrism whatever our epistemology is. So, yeah. And I also like the point you made that, you know, just to remind us that even academics are real people too. So, yeah. And quite often these worldviews and these sort of deep assumptions, um, I, I, I don't think we talk about them enough. They're often implicit or they sit behind the way we work and engage with the world. But it's, that's why I quite like coming back to these really fundamental basic questions and exploring them a little bit, partly because most people on the planet have got the answers to them wrong and they're off working on some other detailed stuff. But if you've understood the world incorrectly, you believe things that just are unfounded. And as we'll come on to the next question, if your scope of moral consideration is set incorrectly so that you're excluding beings that shouldn't be excluded, you know, terrible things go on. So that's why I quite like focusing on these fundamentals. But, yeah. I fully agree with that. And uh, sorry, uh, um, you know, this idea of hum that human is exceptional is rooted in, in religion, but is also rooted in science. We have a very long experience in science of like Descartes, for instance, believing that... Uh, yeah, but uh, humans are very different from animals, so I fully agree. We should be also very uh, uh, in the spirit of always challenging our beliefs. Thank you. Well, let's come on to this second question of you know what matters and who matters. So some people like to keep these questions very separate. You know, the, the classic idea of this is ought chasm that cannot be breached, and you can't get an ought from an is. Um, most of my guests and I think that there are you know, stronger links, or maybe that chasm is overstated, but let, let's see where we go. But I guess the first question is for someone like you or me with a naturalistic way of thinking, you know, a scientifically grounded way of thinking, an obvious question is, okay, so where do your ethics come from? If you don't have the Quran or the Bible or, you know, the principles of the Bhagavad Gita or the Torah uh, or the Hadiths, you don't, you don't have lists of rules, you don't have the concept of a, a deity who will judge you and punish you. So, you know, what are right and wrong or good and bad. How how do you respond to that challenge from a naturalistic starting point? Okay, so I'm going to um, answer with an, an example related to um, what I think has uh, played a role uh, in my um, sort of vegetarian epiphany, the, the period where I uh, started to realize that uh, animal welfare counts and maybe I should reconsider my diet. And that, I think, uh, explains a lot. Uh, I mean, is um, an example that, that uh, is similar to, to what many other people have experienced. Uh, because we are, we are, when we are raised, we eat meat, we don't really think about that, we build our morality around it, uh, we don't really question it, uh, and for some people, someday something happens, and then uh, they, they completely change their view of the world. And uh, I believe I'm, 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 I, uh, I had some, an experience that is related to that. Um, so I, I, think, I think it was about uh, maybe 10 years ago, I, and I, um, I was seeing a, a woman, it was a sort of date <laughs> relation at the time, and, uh, and she was vegetarian. And uh, I remember I was, um, when, during our discussion, I was a bit um, sort of passive-aggressive. Passive I was trying to challenge her. Yeah. 
asking questions such as, uh, uh, but what's the problem with milk industry? For instance, what's the problem with uh, eggs and so on? And then she explained to me, uh, I mean, uh, repeated uh, insemination, uh, the male uh, uh, don't have really a value and we destroy the cheats and so on. And and it was uh, it was really uh, obvious when he, she was explaining that. And I and to me that was uh, I, I'm not sure if it's that ex that uh, discussion that really triggered things. But uh, in retrospect, it, it may have uh, because I like to see myself, as I said to you before, as, as a rational uh, uh, scientific person who uh, old. Uh, informed beliefs, but here we have a case in which uh, it concerns the choice that I make every day, several times a day, my diet. Um, I like to see myself as a rational person. I like to see myself as someone who cares about others, in particular animals. And I, I was, my beliefs was co were completely wrong. I was completely ignorant about what's going on in that industry. And uh, and that really was quite a question mark for me. Uh, what's going on here? I, uh, I I I didn't see that while it's quite obvious, and I had wrong beliefs. So what what happened in my what what did happen in my brain, in my mind, and in that society, so that I couldn't see the obvious. And uh, that was a starting point, I guess. And from that, so that's a team of uh, cognitive dissonance in psychology and I was uh, in economics about 10 years ago we started to think about this uh, team of this uh, uh, topic of cognitive dissonance and that was my starting point uh, apply this question of cognitive dissonance and meet paradox and to, to try to formalize it in, in economics and uh, and then I started to uh, to inquire about that and as I am part of a French research agricultural institute it was easy to get information and every time I I had new sources of information. It was bad news. I was always optimistic about what's going on in the farming industry. All, all the time, it was basically the worst uh, case scenario that I discovered. Uh, and th that was just a discovery, a very bad discovery. And then I started to discuss with this with colleagues, and I realized their beliefs were very, very mistaken as well. I remember one time that one of my colleagues is an expert in the milk industry. She knows everything about the milk industry. And one day she came to me and she said, but what's the problem with animal welfare in the milk industry? She's an expert in that field. Yeah. So to me, that's very revealing. People uh, don't want to see, don't want to know even the experts, even the, 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 the person who knows everything, everything about, the, about the, what's going on with uh, the way we raise animals. It's amazing. And, the, and the, those social norms are so powerful. It's as, if, it's as though... We start from, and this is another area where I do think ethics and epistemology link together because the starting point, whether we acknowledge this or not, well, normally we don't. The starting assumption is what I do and what the people around me do is normal. Um, because it is normal, it is therefore good. And everything else flows from that. So you start with a conclusion, which is not a scientific approach. Yeah. You start with the conclusion you want, and then you will do anything required to support that. And in my own introspection, you know, I use the full available toolkit of psychological mechanisms to make that work. So, you know, I avoided the topic because I didn't want to engage with it. When I did engage with it, I, you know, warped my understanding of the facts, you know, and there is a well-funded industry out there that is desperate to tell you that farming animals is humane, 
And there are billions of desperate consumers who really want to believe that because it means they won't have to change. And then, as you say, cognitive dissonance, acrasia, you know, so it warps not only your epistemology and leads you to hold incorrect, unfounded beliefs, even experts, but it can also warp your values and ethics because you, you're almost forced to reshape what you think is ethically important to enable you to carry on doing what you're doing before. It's so powerful. It's And it, in a way, it gives me a lot of hope because I think many people have a latent ethic that you and I share. I think most people care about non-human animals. Most people aren't, at least in concept, totally anthropocentric. So that gives me hope. But it's also depressing because the social norms are so overwhelmingly powerful and extremely hard to break. And as you've implied, you know, even with you know, experts and academics and people who are committed to using evidence and reason, just laying out the facts is, you know, it's rarely enough for a, a similar epiphany. So. Yeah, I really like what you, you, you said uh, here, and in particular, uh, using the language of economics, I really believe that there is a demand for cognitive dissonance, but also supply for it. I mean, the industry yeah. is, uh, is feeding these uh, mistaken beliefs And uh, so there, there is really, a, a, um, I think we need, we need as a social scientist uh, to use our tools to really understand uh, this very complex system that uh, keep, uh, that maintain these beliefs that lead, lead many people to think that um, everything is fine with the farming industry. Most, most uh, practices are fine and it's under control and there are policies are, um, are well done and so on. Yeah. And you've, in a way, you've answered both of the questions, you know, what matters and what is ethics, but also the second question about moral scope and who gets to count in our ethics. But in that first question, why why do you care about other humans and, and other animals? If that isn't a silly question to ask, what is it that leads you to care? That's a good question. Uh... Um, of course, there are um, evolutionary reasons for why we care about others, uh, in particular humans, cooperation and so on, but I'm not sure we know, uh, in general, why we care about animals. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, um, it's really an under-researched question. I mean, there is a lot, there is a lot of research about uh, empathy within humans, also in animals, but why we humans care about animals, I think there is very little research on that. I don't even, I'm not even sure why I do care about animals. What uh, I guess we know from scientific results is that uh, we care more about some animals than others. For instance, we tend to care about dogs, about horses. So typically the animals we have learned to uh, cooperate with. So there is an evolutionary advantage to learn uh, and to be empath empathetic toward these animals uh, such as dogs and, uh, and horses. Uh, there is also this um, idea that we we have compassion to take care of babies, and so maybe uh, we extend that to animals that look like babies, and so on. So there are these theories around, but I'm really not not sure why uh, why I care about animals and why humans in general care about animals. Yeah, and it's an interesting uh, because it's a difficult question to ask in a answer in a way because you can answer it descriptively. You can talk about evolution and motivations and psychology and behavior. Um, but you can also talk about it normatively, I guess. And in that sense, it is it is really just a choice. It's a choice to have moral consideration for or have compassion for, for others. And again, in these conversations, it's been fascinating because some people find their way into that compassion 
for other humans and non-humans uh, in quite a naturally emotional, empathic way. Uh, you know, they grew up with animals, they've spent time with animals, they just feel that connection and it's an emotional thing. With other people, it's quite sometimes even quite a cold intellectual exercise where they're just saying, you know, the science shows those other beings suffer. If I have any moral consideration at all, if morality means anything, it has to mean some compassion and moral consideration for them. So, you know, just technically, it makes sense. There's no if I want to have consistent ethics and I don't want to have arbitrary ethics, then it's a sort of logical operation. And I think for most people, it's maybe a mix of both. There is a sort of intuitive compassion that I think all of us have to some degree. And then people sort of extend it and challenge it and try and make it more consistent and, and less arbitrary to varying degrees. But personally, I, I, I use the concept of sentience to draw my moral scope. And I think there's a good overlap with the term animal, because I think, you know, most of the animals that we interact with have sentience, although I think there are some differences around the borderline. And that is also a fuzzy area when you look at the very simplest invertebrates, or if you look at a sea sponge, for example, it's technically an animal, but it, it probably isn't sentient because it has no, no nervous system. So so I guess, and the idea behind the sentient-centric and sentientist stance is saying, whatever sentience is, and whichever beings have it, you know, we should be open-minded and scientific about that. Sentience and the capacity to suffer matters. So that's how we're defining the scope. But there are, so there are some people who will challenge that and say, look, you've gone too far. We should concentrate on humans and only humans really matter. And I, you and I would disagree with that. And I think it's in a way that the speciesist approach is as arbitrary as many of the intra-human discriminations. You know, why just pick a morally irrelevant characteristic and exclude suffering beings on that basis but there's another challenge as well and i know you've done some work that goes into these spaces when people are thinking about the environment and the biosphere too where people some people will say look sentientism doesn't go far enough we also need to have direct intrinsic moral consideration for all living things so the biosphere biocentrism for example and plants which most people think are not sentient but are living or even more broader than that sort of holistic ecocentrism that says rocks and rivers and plants and trees and even the Earth as Gaia warrant intrinsic moral consideration too. So what are your thoughts about going beyond sentience? So first of all, uh, talking as an economist, let me state again that in economics, essentially all research is anthropocentric. So if we have the, yeah. these three categories of moral uh, approach, anthropocentrism, sentientism, and then let's say uh, ecocentrism or... Uh, holistic approach, we are clearly in the first category, like 99.99% of the time. So, yeah. so, um, so that's the way we approach that in economics. And I think, the, at least within the utilitarian tradition, which is essentially the tradition that is followed in economics, Conceptually, it's not very difficult to extend that approach. Uh, basically, we say now in, in economics that we, we uh, humans have utility, and as a normative objective, we should maximize welfare, so basically maximize utility. If it is utilitarian, it's a sum of utilities in the society. So then now we just have to plug uh, animals, the animals that we consider as sentient, and then we maximize the well-being of humans and animals so conceptually it's not a it's not a, it's not really a revolution but in practice it is a revolution because now we will need to uh, to measure welfare we it's 
we always, um, it's not even clear how to measure human welfare and economics, so we have discussed that forever. But now, if we have to, to measure uh, animal welfare, it's extremely difficult. And to, uh, in particular, given that the many animals uh, and uh, we need to put weight, moral weights, uh, we need a lot of inputs from um, biology, uh, philosophy, and um, let's say neurosciences, and so on. And we need to compare to uh, to humans, so that that's really a research challenge. So my uh, my take on that is that we we, we should go into uh, into that uh, research area. It's difficult, it's challenging, but uh, these days, essentially, no nobody in, in economics is is doing that challenging step. So this is the road we should take, and it's very natural to start with uh, species that are lost to us, like mammals, birds, and so on, uh, we know they are for sure, um, almost for sure, that they are sentient, uh, and we have learned a lot from, from them. But I leave it open to, uh, to extend the moral line, maybe to uh, insects. Uh, we can put some probabilities. Uh, yeah. we, can, we can possibly even include uh, plants, even though at this point, based on the evidence I know, I don't think plants are sentient, and I'm not sure I would uh, include, I would assume that plants are, uh, should have moral consideration, but I'm not, I'm open to it. Uh, but of course, they, they, would, they, they certainly have a value because they, uh, they, uh, they uh, sentient life live thanks to this species, and, and that also includes the moralistic approach. So if uh, caring about the world simply is important because it, uh, it helps uh, sentient beings to, to, uh, to have a reasonably good life, I'm happy with that. Yeah, thank you. That makes sense. And I think I, I feel a similar way in that um, the way I framed sentientism is it doesn't tell us which beings are sentient. It doesn't have a stance on philosophy of mind either. So there are sentientists who have very radical different views about what consciousness and sentience really are. But it just says, you know, the capacity to suffer and flourish matters, whatever it is and wherever we find it. And we should follow a naturalistic approach to try and understand where those boundaries are. And they may well be fuzzy boundaries. They may be difficult things to work out, but, you know, suffering should still matter wherever we think it might be. Um, so I think that open-mindedness is deeply important to, to those other ideas. I'm also open to the ideas of there being value beyond sentience. So in, in a sense, sentientism says you have to grant moral consideration to every sentient being, but you can go further if you like, but just don't exclude any of the sentient beings. Now, personally, I, the value I see in you know plants, rocks, rivers, trees, ecosystems, and so on, for me, there is enormous value there. But as you hinted at, it's instrumental because of its impact on all of the sentient beings. Um, and that is different from it having own, its own intrinsic value. You know, I think there is a really fundamental deep chasm between crushing a rock and cutting the throat of a pig. And it sort of seems obvious to say, but so I, I, I'm quite a strict sentient-centrist, if you like. Um, but I don't mind people going a little bit further as long as another none of the sentient beings get excluded. And that's going to be really interesting because as we come on to this final question of how can we make a better world, your work in economics is really important. And, uh, and from my amateur understanding of economics, the development of the field seems to be echoing some of the changes that we're making in human culture generally. So um, people, will, people look at economics in its traditional context and they will think of it 
not just as something that's exclusively human, but also it's quite weird using that acronym, you know, for I think it's Western educated, industrialized, rich, is it developed? But it's but it's also come out of quite a, you know, a Western oriented mindset that is quite focused on, you know, white rich males in developed economies. And that's been the sort of central gravity, if you like, of economics. And there's been a, a, a number of moves within economics to think about feminist economics, uh, to think about uh, development economics. So within the human scope, to try and balance that out and make it more egalitarian and more broad and more inclusive and, and more considerate of all of humanity. And obviously that work is ongoing. But then there's been a second you know, strong focus within uh, economics which is saying, hold on, the environment matters too. So whether you look at Kate Raworth's donut economics and you know um, some of the work you've analysed and criticised, the DASG to review, and you know the economics field is now starting to take environmental concerns very seriously as well, whether it's ecosystem services or existential risk to humans and so on. But again, as you've hinted, economics seems to have gone from this sort of traditional subgroup of privileged humans to trying to think more broadly and more generously about humans and then jump to ecosystems. But it's sort of forgotten the, you know, the ring in the donut, if you like, about non-human sentient beings. And I think that's analogous with where human culture is generally. You know, it's jumped from a sort of anthropocentric, you know, let's think about universal human rights after the Second World War. And now there's a burgeoning global consciousness still tragically ineffective that seems to have a really rich environmental and ecocentric concern. But even the people expressing that urgent ecocentric concern seem to have forgotten all of the maybe sextillion non-human sentient beings that can actually suffer. So that's part of my frustration is that I don't mind people going to an ecocentric or a biocentric stance in ethics or economics, but you can't skip the, the non-human sentient beings if you're going to expand your moral scope. It can't be a you know, it's supposed to be a moral circle that keeps going out. It can't be a moral donut with humans in the middle, environment here, and then just a horrible gap which allows us to continue exploiting, harming, and killing. So, sorry, that's a mini lecture, but it feels to me like economics has sort of gone down that path. Humans matter. Now all humans matter. Now the environment matters. And your work is trying to address that gap in the middle. I don't know if that's a fair description. Yeah. Um... I think it's fairly a fair description. I have similar frustration as in other uh, disciplines. Uh, economics is uh, what economists are doing, and uh, that, that is a bit shaped by uh, who are the economists, and uh, there are biases for sure. Uh, for a long time, it was um, male were dominate. I mean, mostly male researchers. Uh, of course, it shaped the agenda. May most. Uh, most prestigious departments were in the US, so that shaped the, the questions and the, 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 the data that were used and so on. So we, and uh, indeed, uh, it's um, the, the animals are not part of the agenda. We, we humans have political power on Earth. We decide the research uh, budget based on uh, human well-being, and so we are not going to, to uh, to provide um, a vast amount of money for research on uh, that is going to improve the well-being of animals. So, for sure, there are these political forces that that also affect the research outcomes. I, I agree with that, and I agree also with this, this trend that 
economics is um, uh, is expanding, uh, and uh, it can be illustrated with uh, winners of a Nobel. In 2002 or three, uh, we gave a, a Nobel to Dan Kahneman, who is a psychologist. So that uh, that's the behavioral economics uh, development. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we gave it to uh, William Nordhaus, who is an environmental economist. So that uh, illustrates uh, the, some topics that have grown, uh, developed in economics. And I think the most recent uh, prize was given to some deve- developmentally economists as well, I think. So again, that's in, it's still within the human space, but you know, recognising the, the importance and diversity of the field there. Yeah. One, one of the other interesting things about economics is I think partly because of that history, because of that traditional history, many people outside the field look at economics, I think, in quite a narrow way. They think of it as about money, about markets, about capitalism. And, and sometimes that will already make them deeply sceptical of the entire field, as if they'd like to just abandon it and do something that feels more humane and organic. But I guess the way, as an amateur, I tend to think about economics, and you hinted at this in the way you described the imperative to actually measure and assess welfare, is it, I think it, ultimately, it's about, for me, it's about value. And when I ask myself the question of what is value for any sentient being, it does come back ultimately, often through quite a complex chain of dependencies, to the experiences of sentient beings. To my mind, you know, the experiences of sentient beings, the experiences you and I are having now and our ability to keep having them through the rest of our lives and whether those feel good or bad to us, those experiences are the raw material of ethics and morality. You know, feeling good and feeling bad to me links directly to the good and bad of causing those things in other beings. So it's the raw material of morality. Um, but it's also, I think, ultimately what we mean by value, because whenever we talk about well, what might you value, you might value this, this coffee I'm drinking, or you might value your family relationships, so you might value you know, a forest you walk in. The reason you value those things is ultimately because of the impact it has on your experiences and the experiences of other sentient beings. So others disagree about that. But for me, it feels like the grounding raw material of those things. But to my mind, those things are the raw material of economics as well, because, you know, it's not just an economic transaction to buy food or produce food. The reason you buy that food is to, you know, enjoy the sentient experience of having that food and to sustain your ability to have sentient experiences in the future. So in a weird way, that common ethical grounding in the quality of sentient experiences, as you said, whether it's utility or welfare or you measure it in some other way, is is also the grounding of economics. Am I Am I pushing that too far or... How do you think about how economics relates to value and ethics? So I tend to uh, to agree with most of what you say. Um, um, yeah, I think that many people have uh, wrong beliefs about what economics I- is about. There are many myths about uh, economic science, and uh, many believe that economics is only about financial flows, markets. It's not the case. This is true that we have some benchmark results, like the, what we call the welfare theorem, that uh, tells us that if everybody maximizes his or her own interest, then we reach um, an efficient situ- uh, so- solution. So this is the uh, Adam Smith 
idea that a baker is not producing good bread because he is altruist. It's because he wants to sell bread. And so uh, the market forces um, make the best of us. Uh, and the, so that's, that's the sort of benchmark result that hold under some conditions, but we know in economics that these conditions are never satisfied. And most economics is about uh, studying precisely the, what, uh, why these conditions are not satisfied. It could be because uh, uh, there, there is a monopoly situation or an, ex an externality or, uh, or public good situation or asymmetry of information and so many. And so most of, most most of what economists are, are doing is about analyzing how we can uh, uh, correct these inefficiencies. I, I'm going to give you an example that illustrates this uh, beliefs that many people hold about what economics is about. So seven years ago, my, my colleague here in Toulouse, Jean Tirol, got the Nobel in economics. He got, he, he got it for his research on uh, to address market power. So someone said, typically when some firms have too much power and so that's an inefficiency and the regulator needs to regulate uh, the firms. But then the French media, when they, they read uh, the announcement of the Nobel uh, by Jean Tirol regarding uh, market power, they, they, the way they, they got it is that he got his Nobel Prize because of his research on the power of markets, which is exactly the opposite idea. It's not yeah. about, his research was not about the power of market, it was about market power. And so that shows how many journalists think about economics. It's only about, uh, about markets and their power. Uh, and, uh, and that's mistaken beliefs. And for your information, these days, my colleague has a, has a very interesting paper uh, uh, entitled uh, The Morality of Markets. So we, you, you, you can see where we are now in economics. We really try to think about um, whether markets are moral or not. And so I, I fully agree with you. I think we, um, uh, eco economist is, um, and economics is often um, uh, presented in a way that is very schematical about what we are doing, and it's, it's mostly about, it's, it's indeed a lot about value. I would add it's a lot about incentives. We want to understand why people make some specific actions and how we can affect these actions, and also the beliefs. So economics is, is a lot about the sciences of incentives. Yeah, thank you. Now, I'm going to ask you a difficult question here, but if you if you imagine a situation where you develop this field of sentientist economics, so it becomes the default assumption in the entire of economics, and all the other economists say, Nicola, this is so blindingly obvious that all sentient beings, you know, warrant moral consideration, their value counts, you know, we're genuinely going to expand the field. So the field of economics now becomes sentientist in its assumptions. I guess two questions. One, how would, how do you think that would have an impact in the world? And what do you think the world might look like once sentientist economics has become the defaulted, the, you know, the default assumption and widely accepted? What could the utopian future look like? Okay, but of course, that kind of a dream to imagine that uh, economics will become sentientist. Uh, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, it's only a matter of time, maybe, but uh, at least, uh, as I said before, the, conceptually, it's not, uh, it, will, it will not be so different because we just have to expand uh, our approach and to uh, expand our uh, uh, the object of well-being in our in our in our 
usual models. Let me add that there are, I, th I think there, there could be two channels uh, where we uh, compassion toward animals, or, or, or let's say pro-animal choices could be uh, could, uh, could matter in, in economics. One channel is through compassion. So that's really more about behavioral economics. So we want to better understand the psychology of people. So we, in economics, for the last 20 years, we've learned a lot about pro-social choices by people, pro-environmental choices. And I think the next step is to have pro-animal choices to better understand these choices. There is a lot of psychology research on that. Uh, cognitive dissonance is part of it. The me paradox, for instance, but there are many other topics and we need to understand uh, what really matters to people well, so that they can think about animals, they can act in favor of animals. Uh, that could go through uh, fiscal instruments, for instance. It could also go with uh, nudges, with uh, information, uh, with uh, norms and so on. So, uh, so that's one channel. But there is another channel which is completely distinct from compassion. It could, uh, it could happen without compassion. And it's uh, really the, what we call social choice. It's really a field at the interface of uh, economics and philosophy. And here, we, we basically, it says that uh, uh, we should attribute moral consideration to animals in, because they, they matter morally, even if people don't care. The problem with that approach is that in practice, humans have political power. So we cannot really rely too much on that approach. Uh, but still, there is a scope for it. Uh, think about future generations, for instance. Future generations, politically, they have no weight. They don't vote. But still, they matter somehow. So, so that's the direction of research, I guess. But we should think about how we can really make... Um, we can use this social choice to uh, to uh, affect our let's say social decision in practice, and that's that's really challenging. Yes, I'm not sure I have fully answered your question, but uh... <laughs> now that's a good start. But I, I agree. There's uh, as I've looked across lots of different domains, it's remarkable how conceptually easy it is to extend from anthropocentrism to sentientism using many of the same tools. You know, and, I've, and like I said, I've you know I've rewritten the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and I've done some work on what sentientist development goals might look like. And I think you're right with economics; you could actually just use many of the standard tools and extend them out. Uh, but at the same time, there are real difficulties around social norms and human psychology and politics that mean you know just having analytically the right answers is isn't enough. But I, you know, I, I could imagine a situation where, with a much more sentientist economics you could see some radical quite powerful changes you know ideally the complete end of animal farming and exploitation for example maybe a very different way of uh, valuing ecosystems that recognize the value of the sentient beings in the ecosystem not just thinking about ecosystem services for humans in the way we think about externalities and so on so yeah i think it could have quite a deep powerful impact but as you imply it's not enough by itself there's politics and psychology and norms getting in the way too but i think uh, having a sentientist economics will be a powerful force for good yes i, I agree with that and uh, in, in economics we uh, when we want to, to change uh, the situation for instance to, uh, to to improve well-being well when there is a market failure uh, we have three uh, three ways to do it uh, one is to affect the supply side so changing production. 
So if you think about farm animals, that would be about uh, introducing norms, animal welfare standards. Personally, I'm not so optimistic uh, about this because it's completely um, uh, captured by agricultural interest. I mean, yeah. look at uh, the greening of uh, CAP, for instance, it's been, uh, it's been a fiasco uh, it's been, uh, for the last uh, 20 years or more. So there is little hope that uh, if we, if we uh, try to regulate farmers, it will really improve the situation because the law is not there to really protect animals. It's there to protect farmers' interests. So, yeah. uh, so that, uh, that I think I'm not op very optimistic to, uh, to, uh, to uh, but we can use the supply side and uh, we can see that all the agricultural interests, they want to use the supply side approach. So we give subsidies to farmers and we improve situation, but I think that doesn't work. Uh, unless there is a very uh, important uh, political, political change, but uh, I'm not so optimistic about that. But of course, we can, uh, we can still take some, uh, some uh, there is still some, some ways to improve the situation, but probably small steps. The second, the second way is to affect the demand. So, uh, changes in diets. There, I think we could be more, uh, more effective, but still I'm not so uh, optimistic because uh, habits are very strong. We like very much meat. Uh, there are norms that you mentioned before. Um, so I think it will take a lot of time. Uh, it's, and uh, even though there is a, an increasing proportion of people who are vegetarian or vegan, it's still very small. So I'm, I'm not sure if we change, maybe, but uh, I, I think it will take a lot of time. And so, and the last way, which I would tend to favor as creating a big change, is uh, innovation, because uh, we research is improving a lot. Think about cultivated meat, for instance. Then uh, and then you can use the, the traditional forces of economics and uh, and provide the food that people like. I mean, at least most people like with less externalities, probably uh, health and environmental externalities, and um, essentially uh, no um, negative externalities on animals. Yeah. Uh, so I think that uh, if I would have a word of hope to conclude our interview, I would uh, bet on the, 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 um, the innovations that are coming. Yeah, thank you. I think we can pull all of those levers at once, but I share your sense that the substitutes may be you know, the thing that will drive us fastest. Uh, yeah. So I want to ask you one final question before we wrap up as an economist. I've spoken to people in these conversations who have radically different views on economics. They all share a sentiocentric compassion. You know, they all base their views on evidence and reason, or most of them do, but they have very different views on economics. So some think we can move to a more compassionate version of capitalism, where consumers and producers and regulators all build in a sentientist ethic into their way of operating. So we have a capitalist system, but it's more compassionate. Others think that exploitation is built into the heart of capitalism and we need to tear it down and uh, have some form of more socialistic or even communistic uh, approach. Others suggest we need a sort of anarchist approach and there are many different varieties there. It's a big question to ask, but what's your sense of the, of the right economic system 
or the most realistic one going forward as we try and think more broadly about sentient beings? So if we look at the past to predict the future, I think we cannot really say that there is a correlation between uh, the economic political system and the, how much the treatment of animals. I think you can, uh, I mean, if you look at even the current situation now, you have very different political system uh, across the world, and I'm not sure that there are, um, that uh, if you go from uh, extreme, very strong capitalistic society versus communist societies, I'm not sure what we could, that we can say that there is a striking difference with respect to, to animals' treatments. The part of the world where maybe the, we have, um, um, we can see the, that animals are really taken into consideration, seems to be the north of Europe, Scandinavian countries, for instance, so they have a specific, specific uh, economic social system. Uh, that also to tend to reduce inequalities. And it's not out of capitalism, it's just, uh, I think it's more into a sort of uh, um, uh, interpretation of capitalism with, uh, with, uh, with a lot of state intervention yeah. uh, that, that makes sure that uh, we can, uh, we can uh, reduce uh, inequalities, at least some type of inequalities. And I would, uh, if I would have again to bet on a system that would um, help uh, going in good direction, I would vote for this. I mean, I would bet on this type of, of systems for the future. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you. We've answered what's real, what matters, and how can we make a better future. And I'm really looking forward to sentientist economics taking over the whole of economics and you know, helping to solve all the world's problems. But your work is so distinctive. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, and please do stay in touch. What's the best way of people following you, reading your papers, learning more about your work? I have a web page and uh, I'm on Twitter. Nothing very originally. Oh, that's great. And I will include those links in the show notes. That's great. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me and for uh, forging ahead with Sentientist Economics. It's been a pleasure to have you on Sentientist Conversations. Thank you, Jamie. Ciao. Thanks, Nicola. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?